From 11FS, I'm Ross Gallagher and this is Fintech Insider News. Today we bring you Facebook's data breach, the rising cost of Brexit, oh, and some good news. Burger King's AI-written ads are beautiful disasters. All this and much, much more on today's show. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Fintech Insider News. My name is Ross Gallagher and I'm joined by my colleague and co-host, Simon Taylor. Hey Simon, how are you doing today? I'm very well. You and I have had a busy day reinventing the point of sale financing market. How's it been for you? I mean, what a week as always, but like no no end of interesting. It was no end of interesting. Some of the quote wall things were really special, but that's, um, that's enough about us. We've got some amazing guests. Well, as always, we're not alone and we are joined in the room as usual by some fantastic guests. We have friend of the show, Nina Mahanti, business development at Bud. How are you doing, Nina? Hey, hey, I'm good. I miss you guys. Yeah, it's so good to have you uh, on the show. Leslie Ann Vaughan, so co-creator of Mpesa and now our very own product and African markets expert here at 11FS. How are you doing, Leslie Ann? I'm doing very well. First show with that title. Yeah, it's good, isn't it? I mean, we're so that pleased that you're here. There? <laughs> uh, well, we did announce it. There was a whole social card. There was there was a picture. There was everything. Yeah. Nina, if you know one thing about 11FS is that we love a social card. Oh, yeah, obviously. Uh-huh. Duh. And alongside Nina and Leslie Am, we have Liana Brinded, head of Yahoo Finance UK and host of Yahoo Presents. It's a jungle out there. How are you doing, Liana? I'm very good. Thrilled to be on. Awesome. We're thrilled to have you. So we are coming to you live from the 11FS offices and WeWork Altgate in London, England. Don't forget, if you have any questions for us, drop us an email at podcast11fs.com or find us on social media. So with that, let's start the show. And our first story is about RBSing, RBS preparing, RBSing. We be RBSing. RBSing, aren't they? RBS is now a verb to RBS. Um, They're preparing to launch a standalone digital bank. So they're going to launch a bank called Bo. Um, although, is it Bo? Is it Bo? Who knows? To try and compete with Monzo et al. Um, the bank's going to launch next year and it'll only be available on mobile and RBS want to migrate 1 million NatWest customers over to it. So I guess last week we discussed Monzo's first million customers. Do we think it's cheating if RBS just moves existing customers to Bo? Well, the assumption is that they can do that, right? So we just saw with TSB, it's kind of challenging to migrate customers and doing it and doing it well. Um, I think I just accidentally quoted LL Cool J, but... Um, you say th- accidentally. <laughs> <laughs> but that's that's not an easy thing to do. No. And this quote from the uh, the CEO, uh, Ross McEwen, has played down the smaller challenge banks now. I think that's a bit of editorial license. Saying they'll struggle in the future as larger, more established rivals pick up speed after a decade of heavy, hefty restructuring and misconduct costs following the financial crisis. Now, don't disagree with them entirely. I think the banks are back. They're, they're kind of in a position where they're looking to invest in growth and innovation. And I think they have every opportunity to do that. Um, but it, it, migrations aren't as easy as they sound. Well, well, I mean, like, I think that it is totally cheating, to be honest, in terms of like growing that customer base. I mean, the whole point of challenger banks and the reason why they have become 
a challenger to the incumbent uh, lenders is because they've grown like almost this community and culture around people wanting something different. That's why fintech is booming, because people want something different to what has always been given to them. So by just creating something in-house and going, hey, we've done our own challenger back. Oh, by the way, we're just going to move you over without any choice. That is cheating because people like Monzo have built that from nothing. So I have two points on this. One, on the name, everyone's giving them a lot of stick for the name. but Some, some like deodorant stick? Yeah, a deodorant stick, <laughs> if you will. Um, so President Barack Obama was gifted a Portuguese water dog from Ted Kennedy a while back, and his name is Bo, which is coincidentally Barack Obama's initials. So I love the name. Um, and so secondly, are you saying the bank's named after the former U.S. president or the former U.S. president's dog? Both. Okay. And I think that's great. Um do you think that's like accidental brilliance, though? Because um, <laughs> apparently brilliant. the article suggests it's uh, meant to be Danish for to live. Although, but why Danish? Why Danish? Yeah. I mean, I like bacon. Yeah. I happen not to be vegetarian. Other foods are available, but the the like the to live thing. Okay, I can see what they were going for. Go about your life and live. Um, but it feels a little bit like um, oh, they've got a million customers. We're going to do thing with a million customers rather than this really well thought through proposition. Um, And we're going to announce a thing, not do a thing. I will actually take the opposing argument from Leanne. I actually think that it's not cheating. And I think we talk a lot about the legacy systems that a lot of the incumbent banks have to deal with. And so creating a stack completely greenfield, as opposed to migrating, which is what happened with TSB, is, you know... I think, in my opinion, very good because it takes out the the trouble with that the cost of doing it in the first place, the the time consumption of moving over and all that, and the glitches that come with. Uh, actually see, I migrating. couldn't agree more with the benefits of having a greenfield tech stack build or even a, a vendor supplied that happens to be new instant. Um, like both of those are fine answers. But the assumption in this article was they're then going to migrate an existing million customers from their old stack to this new one, and that that's where that's different ex- migration problem. Yeah, well, it's, it's the, well, is it though? Because it's kind of very similar to what TSB had. Like TSB went from one tech stack to another tech stack, mm. and problems happened. But it's happened before. I banked, I think, with Alliance Lester. And they merged with Santander and we went on a migration path and it was a technical thing and I had to move to their new internet banking and it kind of worked. And it was it was fine. It worked. They planned it. But <laughs> so did TSB. <laughs> well, maybe maybe they did a stage rollout, all that kind of thing. You could see that there was there was a plan in play. But back to history. We also got this quite wrong in one of our Impesa markets along the way because they made an assumption that if you had a SIM card, you wanted Impesa. Yeah. And so they pre-registered everybody from these accounts, which meant that they blasted everybody with a PIN number for the new account. Of course, they didn't know what it was, so they didn't know they wanted it. So by the time they did know how, what it was, they needed a PIN reset, and it was just a, what a mess. And what's missing here is the thought that goes into the migration, the thought that goes into the, the customer. The human-centered bit, yeah. the jobs to be done. Yeah, right? that, that bit, 
it's hard to lead with that in an article that's an exclusive that's 800 words and maybe they've thought about that and maybe there's a really good piece of that that they haven't had the day like for and and, and you know to be fair to them they haven't had the opportunity to articulate that so it could be there my hope is this doesn't look like a, an oldie worldy migration and it looks more like an opportunity to really rebuild the relationships with customers i do want to give a shout out to a bit of cheek that came from the revolut twitter account did anybody see this yes absolutely uh, hard to miss um, so Revolut put um, put out a tweet that says, building a challenger bank is sweaty work, and this is no more apparent than RBS naming its new challenger bank BO. So we sent them a little gift basket in the mail, and it's a picture of a gift basket containing uh, several deodorants. And, it's such a sad-looking gift basket. I don't know if that's um, just a nuanced um, sort of dig. But, I mean, you know, look, I, I think the issues surrounding particularly Big Bang Migration to something we've talked a lot about on this show. I'm going to sum it up with a quote from our CTO, you and Silver earlier, which was, the only thing that big bangs do is leave big holes in the ground. But I was going to move us on to the um, the story around the sort of payday chaos for millions as the glitches hit online banking. So last Friday, of course, the last Friday of the month and payday for a lot of people in the UK, many people were locked out of multiple banks, online banking portals and mobile apps crashed. Um, so this is something that just sort of seems to be happening with um, an ever increasing frequency again in this instance of some cases money actually disappeared from their accounts the rate at which this is happening is it starting to become worrying is it that it's happening more or is it that we're reporting on it more and it's mainstream news more this is in the express um this stuff gets covered in the bbc your website being down is now huge news 10 years ago your website being down was like who cared five people noticed well yeah and you know what do you do with the money in your account quite often you swipe your card and your card works Right. Even if your mobile banking doesn't work, your card still swipes. And the banks affected included Barclays, HSBC and God bless them, TSB. Um, After similar issues had impacted RBS and NatWest um, and Ulster and Barclays kind of the week before. This is gaining momentum and becoming an all too regular occurrence. But how much of this is like uh, creaking aging systems? How much of this is just um, we're paying more attention to it? Well, I think like as someone who's been covering um, this sector and especially like on this side for years now, I mean, even about 10 years ago, people were still reporting on this and there was still um, the regulators then fining, you know, the likes of NatWest and RBS like a year later. And that it just seems to be continuing. So I don't think it's necessarily like people are reporting on it more. I think it's actually been continual. And I think this is a good segue from the last item of, you know, when people are talking about banks and especially from the outside point of view that when it comes to trusting a bank it doesn't matter from the outside if someone inside is going we're doing different stacks we're going to migrate over it's like well you can't even fix something that seemingly seems simple about online banking you can't access accounts you're stuck in a petrol station you can't use a card or you can't you know even go on the phone to do it and you know when it's payday um and you need to pay for your rent whether you need to pay for your bills that is what is the real effect on it you know all the stories doesn't make a difference shouldn't be forgotten exactly and it gets worse as you become lower in the pyramid of income we were in kenya with no cable to to our data centres in Germany. So when there was a sunspot, the whole of Mpesa would go down for 15 minutes. And we had customers in a store trying to cash out. We could do nothing about it because there was a sunspot. But we actually did a little bit of an exercise and went, how do we deal with that from a customer 
trust perspective, right? Because we know we can't deal with it from the actual tech. What can we do? And we figured out a way to detect that there was a problem and inform him by SMS. Because the SMS is still there's something to be said for that, isn't yeah. there? That it's not about tech, it's about the entire customer relationship. Yeah. Banks seem to have this, it's down. Here's the error message. But what right. can you do about it, and it's, right? It's, it's managing expectations. It's keeping people in the loop. And in that context, actually, is it quite worrying that no kind of cause for this has been announced or released? I don't bank with any of these banks, but um, I'm just thinking about last summer when there were all those outages on the challenger banks and the way that they handled those comms because they did realize that there are people, especially in the morning, trying to get their coffee or whatever down at Pratt, the way that there were push notifications that came up or, well, I guess if the app's not working, you can't push push notification, whatever, um, text messages, whatever. But none of my friends received any sort of messaging that this had happened. So I'm yeah, not can, sure. Can, and listeners, can you think of a moment when you've received a message preempting that your bank is down unless you've gone into the app and seen that it's down or gone onto the website mm-hmm. and seen that it's down? Because I can't. Is this naturally harder for incumbent banks with legacy architecture? Because we saw Paul Pester try to do this, try to manage the fallout through his Twitter account when TSB went down and actually really got harangued for it. We were dealing dealing with this pre-Twitter and we were having to make the decision whether we told customers or not. And what we decided to do in the end, if they are not interacting right now they don't need necessarily to know right now but as soon as they try to interact we tell them because we just felt like it was it was too much noise to to deal with it all the time but we needed to be there at the moment they needed us it's finding those moments to communicate don't over communicate but definitely don't under communicate and there's a balance to be found here and it feels like there's been some under communication when this stuff has happened and that's an opportunity for growth like that's not just bank bashing right like you can do this better guys like it brings trust and, and how can you do it better that doesn't mean going back into your architecture and changing everything something's happened can you build an alert service can you do something that's because if that communication is a one-off exec on Twitter, it's very different to a behavioral change for an organization that behaves differently over time. And so an organization that has championed that type of communication with customers, their CEO, Monzo CEO, Tom Blomfield, was not impressed when all of this happened. I think we can call this tweet of the week. Um, so he tweeted, people often used to ask if one challenger bank has problems, will customer lose trust in all new banks? Now this seems to be happening on a weekly basis. Will it destroy trust in all banks and what can only probably be described as a despair emoji? What do we think of this? Well, I think it's, I think it's uh, pretty true. I mean, like, it's not that it's, um, like he points out, it's on a weekly basis. People are just fed up of it. The thing is, most people, as you'd, um, you know, in the public when they're tweeting about it or going on social media, they don't really care about sorries. They just want to know what is happening. What is a the timeline? They actually don't even want like a lengthy explanation. They just want transparency. And, um, the problem is, is that there's, um, a lot of these times there's no transparency. And even when they try to ring all these helplines that people would be saying it just um, rings off or goes blank so they're like stuck in a position um, and that's the difference with a lot of the challenger banks because where they seem to excel is not just seemingly from the outside the tech point of view but also the quick 
um, transparency and communication with the customer services team. I mean, I personally like something with like Monzo. If you contact the customer service, they can, you can do it on the app. You can like call them up. It's so quick. And that has never been the case when I've backed with other ones. So I, I do want to push though a little bit on the tech side. I think part of the reason you can get into the app and do the chat is because it's not all or nothing. So with, when a bank's down, it's like, down because it's a monolith it's all glued together underneath the hood whereas when monzo's got a microservice that isn't working um you know one of the bits of its architecture isn't working like it's broken but everything else keeps working so i can still get into the app i can still chat i still get the alerts so actually like for a long time the big consultancies have been selling like you need to move towards lego bricks but building lego bricks on top of one big cinder block doesn't make any sense you have to you know really be digital all the way to your core um, and some of that time, I think some of that thinking is is what inspires the first story, which is why you see the bank, the big banks talking about doing their own challenger banks. Exactly. I saw um, a tweet from Simon Vance Kalinas, so one of the lead engineers at Monzo the other day that said they did 39 deployments into a live production environment in one day absolutely blew my mind. I remember being on stage at a conference once uh, where I said, something similar about um google deploys like updates 50 percent of its code base every day for certain products and i remember an old school um executive who was leading the panel says well how do i plan for that and i was like you've missed the point like there's this disease of false certainty we want to be able to plan and look forward all the time but actually the optimum thing to do is to be able to react really quickly so so I think in the context of these, um, the, the benefits of these challenger banks, the next story might seem slightly counterintuitive, but I think there's weight behind it. It comes from the Telegraph and the idea is that switching banks might be more popular if there were any choice. So a CMA study in 2016 concluded that most people haven't switched banks in more than a decade. Um, so mid-sized banks are now planning to launch a lobbying campaign highlighting the role regulation plays in their competitive landscape. So TSB and Metro Bank specifically will argue that the regulators ought to give them a break from highly prescriptive, burdensome rules because they make it impossible for smaller banks to differentiate themselves from larger rivals. So look, they've been banging this drum for a while, right? This is a competition point. You know, what do we think about it? Are they are they hamstrung in comparison to the big banks? No, they just are replicas of them. Uh, if you're a challenger brand and you've got all the same problems of a big bank, you can have a different brand. But if you're fundamentally set up the same way, it, it, it ain't what you do, it's the way you do it. And so if you're operating in the same operating model, if your tech is a monolith, if your communication strategies will tell you nothing – you're going to end up in the same spot. And it's not the regulation that's the issue because I do think that we can probably say that challenger banks have arrived. I think people will look back on the moment that Monzo hit a million customers and go, oh. And people now have already started to argue, oh, well, they're not getting all of the salaries. But, you know, a year ago it was, oh, well, are they going to pre- create, um, move them from prepaid cards? A year before that it was, oh, it's just a prepaid card. That that bottleneck is moving. million customers was a seminal moment for us on M-Pesa. And and it, it just grew and grew from there. You're right. And and, and Simon, you, you use the word monolith and it's exactly right. And I think if these um, kind of brand challenges and smaller banks don't get on board with that and just stay same, same, but difference, no, nothing's going to change, right? I, I really hope that everyone will read this. I think the link will be in the info of the podcast, but it was really wonderfully written. So shout out to Juliet Samuel for that. Um, but I was actually looking at the cast numbers 
And that's kind of that's been, the current sorry. account switching service for US listeners. This is a sorry, service. Guys. So you don't have that in the US, do you? You, you don't have like a service mm-hmm. that where the banks will guarantee they'll switch all of your payments your and your debit slash deposits, as we call it in the states. Yeah, they, they, but so there's a seven day guarantee. You go to another bank, and they're going to help pull all of that stuff across for you and your salary and everything. Mm-hmm. So I was just thinking about last summer and this was kind of a highly contested thing especially on the conference circuit and there was a lot of varying numbers about the percentages but um you know you get the monzos the starlings saying that actually they are seeing quite a lot of people using that service because i think last summer that's when they joined the cash scheme um i would be really interested well i guess they're public to see the tsb and metro bank services and the numbers that they have in terms of that and I would like to sit down with them and say if they really think that it is all of those overhead costs that's keeping them from doing that um, and if they really get to call themselves challenger banks anymore. And I use that service personally when I joined Starling. I, I closed an old account that way. The user experience was beautiful. Um, and I'm really curious whether these banks have adopted a similar kind of user experience. I think on that as well. So this this show sort of evolving into fintechs and neobanks yay and sort of incumbents and older challenges nay but i am i'm i'm going to move us on to our next story which sort of i suppose continues down the same path so this story comes from the guardian and it's about the danske bank chief stepping down so this is i guess a story that's been um sort of rattling on for a couple of weeks and in a callback to last week's show in the ing money laundering fine the boss of Denmark's biggest bank has resigned after admitting that the vast majority of 200 billion euros, which is 178 billion pounds, flowing through its Estonian branch was money laundered, um, cash flowing illegally out of Russia, the UK and the British Virgin Islands. Can I just point out that's more than the market cap of all cryptocurrencies? Huge. Like huge, huge money. If cryptocurrency is such a threat, one bank in one country just did more money laundering, well, not did, but enabled more money laundering accidentally than all of cryptocurrency. Like, if you're so scared of cryptocurrency, banks are broken when it comes to AML. And I think this is something that um, I was speaking to somebody who works with the G20 earlier and is trying to put um, really tagging uh, anti-money laundering onto the G7 agenda a lot more because it, it... touches everything money laundering isn't just a financial crime that hurts nobody money laundering is how you fund people trafficking money laundering is how you fund everything from counterfeit goods to modern slavery all of that stuff that we actually really want to prevent uh, and all of that stuff that could be better in the future and that could transform people's lives um, preventing money laundering isn't just hey we should stop that bad thing it's if we really want to see a better world we've got to get good at this and the banks are on the front line of it and their processes that they use i've so much sympathy for because the norm is all you've got is that paper document from somebody five years ago. And even worse than that, the banks are often reliant on another bank and that knows another bank that knows another bank just because of how payments work. So if I'm trying to move money around through five different companies through, you know, if, if Apple wants to move some of its money from Ireland to the Virgin Islands or whatever, it might have to go through three banks to do it. There's no one central source for all of that information, but yet the one bank that you have a relationship with, they're entirely on the hook for all of that money laundering risk. And the only thing they've got to try and prevent that is your passport. You're right. And the the reputational damage here for Danske Bank is huge. Um, What was really nice about that was, and it it harks back to earlier in the show as well, is that you you sort of framed quite nicely the the implications, the fallout and the human story, right? Mm. Because, you know, you hear money laundering and that's just a sort of abstract term and you kind of move on with the rest of your day. But actually considering that human story 
saying that fallout is quite important. Mm. Um, it's everything from terrorist financing to even geopolitics and sanctions, like being close to what's happening in preventing money laundering. Also, the way we try and prevent money laundering is to insert a paper process that creates financial exclusion. In other words, we increase the cost of doing business to such a point at which people can't remit money home yeah. um, to their family. People can't simply go about and set up a business because it's so expensive for the bank to set up that business account for them to be profitable because of the way they do it, because of the paper process they use, that now you're preventing economic activity in a given country or you're preventing uh, people who are on lower incomes or people who are at risk from having it. Well, I would, I would actually say that, like, what what would be the solution? Because the thing is, like, with this Danske Bank one, I think in a way, like, even though that obviously that Guardian and other people have covered it, it isn't as big of a deal anymore because we saw this happen with HSBC, like, in 2012. We saw it with other big banks as well that has still, at this point, being fined billions for having a system that has enabled money laundering. And so, yeah, it gets really complex when you have subsidiaries as well there is no global platform is that even possible with different regulation in different countries and so when it comes to paper system yeah that's really confusing but i'd love to know like what would be an so answer I think it's incentives it. right so the the big reason why people don't come governments don't come down extremely hard on money laundering is because if you come down on hard on money laundering you also come down hard on commerce and yeah. business and your economy so you, the only way to prevent fraud is to kill your income and actually that doesn't have to be the case because the assumption is the only way you prevent fraud is by preventing it the way you used to and so i think one it's a lack of imagination two it's not tagging it to the upside of having prevented that um, and, and I think it's a, it's a sales pitch. So what it, and I think three, and I'm going to hold a candle out for it, distributed ledger. Um, I really do think that uh, you need a way in which uh, banks can match the transactions they have. The fundamental problem of, I need to know that what I see is the same as what you see, is why we have compliance departments chasing pieces of paper around. And that can come through a standards conversation through groups like FATF, and it can come through banks genuinely wanting to do it and seeing not only cost reduction but increased sales because they're now able to sell to clients, countries and customers that they otherwise couldn't address in a profitable way. But that's a, that's going to be a, a hard shift. I am dealing with those kind of issues in, a, in an emerging markets context and I see exactly those reconciliation issues. They're immense, they're manual in the mobile money world, never mind in the bank world. And how do we let our fintech starts up from 10 years ago get to that incumbent position we kind of tried to do too much too quickly and took too many hacks along the way and we ended up putting people in the way and it's it's a real nightmare i think that links to something it's hard for large organizations to buy from fintechs because again you're trying to hack them into your uh, monolith but that's also the definition of good so my platform back in the day had full reconciliation screens like you'd expect of zero to make sure that everything got accounted for in the way in and the way out. But I now see other people's platforms and they go, that's just a business process. And I'm shocked. But that's what's on the other side of my of, of this interoperability equation. So what am I going to do about it? That's where you know, I start to work with things like Loop and Gates Foundation because they're really saying, do you know what, we can do something about that with tech. 
But the problem is that we need to learn how to talk to accountants with a technology mindset and find the business drivers for it. And I think as well, remembering the human story, finance touches everything. Um, So if there's a cause somebody is passionate about, finance touches that cause. And I think if we can remember that when dealing with people who may feel like their job is clock in, clock out, do a load of processes in between, that's not your job. Your job is being on the front line of really making a difference to the world. And when you say front line as well, remember my world actually things disappear into cash quite quickly so we had a huge aml fine situation happening kenya quite recently where it was clearly orchestrated and the bank tellers were as part of it doing huge cash outs that they shouldn't have been doing Um, and the money's disappeared into the ether and this is the problem with Danske Bank, right? I mean, you can have all the tech and all the regulation in place that you want, but I mean, it's a fairly basic level of fraud. The investigation found that several dozen of its employees may have colluded with customers to get around background and security checks, and the bank has already subsequently reported some of its employees and former employees to the Estonian police. But it comes back to this place of, you know, what tech are we putting in place to even monitor our own employee activity in branches and, and non-branches, right? It's, fix- <laughs> it's fixable, but you've got to to kind of do the right thing. Agreed. Okay, I'm going to move us on. So um, our next story comes from the FT and concerns BBVA's executive chairman, Francisco Gonzalez, retiring after 18 years. So it's um, it's a pretty impressive story. So I think despite being one of the sort of elder statesmen um, in the banking world, he's been incredibly progressive, um, done a huge amount around the innovation space, the human-centered design space. I think he's, he's definitely a worthy shout-out, right? So he's interesting. Um, Jason, um, yeah. bless him, had the privilege of interviewing Mr. Gonzalez on stage at the BBVA Open Summit last year in a rare English language interview um, which which we got um, we weren't able to put it out unfortunately and we're still working on that He's um, he, he gracefully gave us some time on stage though and one of the things he said was that uh, he took over the bank in sort of 2001 and then hired a load of bankers and it took him a few years to realise that actually what he didn't need were bankers what he needed were technologists yeah. there were plenty of people in the organisation that got banking technologists, many designers that, yeah and, and just a variety of skill sets and I think going back to that last point is the variety of skill sets rather than just um, tenured people at doing that one thing is is kind of an organisational question how do you organise your team to be able to do that and, and he, having he said that about diverse range of skills spread throughout all the different teams in the organization yeah. we're not talking about a, an innovation lab where you've got some innovation going on but it's completely siloed from the rest of the organization yeah absolutely but you have to start somewhere and so maybe it's starting with um people who have end-to-end ownership of a product or a customer base you've got to have ownership from soup to nuts of of the uh, the whole thing but then that becomes something you start to replicate and roll out and i'm not saying it's easy and again i think this is why um the big banks are trying to launch challenger banks because they recognize that burning platform and and uh, you know bbva have done a lot of in terms of uh, venture they've done a lot in terms of entering new markets some of the stuff they've done in latam has been you know really quite impressive around payments um they've uh, some of the uh, stuff i mean they're one of the lead investors in atom and you can question how well atom have done in the uk in terms of their market entry but um, they, they've certainly been active and when it comes to their proposition I think 95% of all of their customer journeys are available through mobile yeah, it's incredible uh, and, and, so, and it's up from like single figures percentage only like two and a half years ago that's a so heck of a metric the, the transformation is absolutely huge to piggyback off the previous um, story we often say in um, organizational behavior that the fish rots from the head when we talk about leadership but conversely you know we're talking about regulation AML there. But for this, 
Francisco Gonzalez was such a wonderful leader and set the culture, I think, the the mindset. And we talk about legacy core infrastructure, but I think a lot of the time as well, we hear the legacy mindset and legacy yeah. culture with And it is a mindset. He, he always talked about, you know, competing with the big tech companies Absolutely. instead of competing yeah. with the big banks. And, you know, I think- he, he had, he, in the best way, he's left a legacy. Agreed. Agreed. And, and, and reclaiming that term reclaiming and turning it into a positive legacy. one. I like that. Okay, so time for a quick break. We'll be back very shortly. Is mind control the tech industry's greatest invention? That's one of the questions the Financial Times FT Weekend is currently asking. Each week, FT Weekend brings together an intelligent mix of news, compelling stories, and global lifestyle journalism. To read the article on mind control and a selection of other articles, visit ft.com forward slash open minds. Today, customers are demanding greater value from financial services. They expect more agility, innovation, and security than ever before. Most financial institutions are held back by the shackles of closed legacy systems that limit transparency, block innovation, and ignore customers' demands. Finastra has a bold vision to unlock the potential of people and business. They've created a platform for open innovation in the world of financial services with FusionFabric.cloud. Their solutions span retail, transaction lending, and treasury and capital markets on-premise and in the cloud. Start your transformation journey today with Finastra. Welcome back to Fintech Insider by 11FS. Fintech Insider will be at Money 2020 Las Vegas. We're proud to announce we'll be hosting not one, but two live shows from Money 2020 itself. I am so freaking excited about I'll this. I'll see you there. I'll I be heckling. I could feel it. I could feel it beside me. I could feel the excitement. Oh, it was palpable. It's radiating Tangible. with excitement. If you're based in the US and want to watch the live shows, then Ticket to Money 2020 are available now. If you use code 11FS250, so 11FS250, you'll save $250 from the usual ticket price. How much is that? That is $250. Damn. Using the code <laughs> Say it louder for the people in the back. FS250. <laughs> See you there. Now on with the show. So our next story comes from Business Insider and concerns the recent Facebook breach. So the headline tells us that Facebook could be fined up to $1.63 billion for what was a massive breach, which may have violated EU privacy laws, namely GDPR. So under the law, companies that don't sufficiently protect user data face maximum fines of 20 million euros or 4% of the company's global annual revenue from the prior year depending on which sum is larger. Um, I think the breach was reported to the authorities, but the individuals affected do not yet seem to have been informed. And there have been some pretty high-profile victims of this breach, namely Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg. Um, this is pretty worrying, right? Yes, it is. Um, and, and I think it's it's not just happening to banks anymore. It's not just happening to Experian. This is the big tech companies who were supposed to protect all of your data. Um, and it's happening to them at the edges. It's not happening to their core systems. It's this, uh, this is the... If you're doing APIs, you've got to, when you're being extensible, you've got to be really careful about who you're doing APIs with, which is a lesson for open banking, which, and you can sort of see why the banks go, ah, but security, because this. Now, when you're saying that and your systems are glitching every week, eh, I got less sympathy. 
But there's something here in that 50 million accounts is a chunk of accounts. Um, it's you know, not a million miles off. And it's the a air. tiny little feature that caused it, yeah. right? And that's the thing. And these tiny little features can creep in everywhere. And how do we? How, you know, the person that actually feels it is the management of the company. But when you're doing how many releases a day, how do you decide and, and how to govern that? I think this is interesting that, that like, uh, there are, if you look at the way Starling's done its marketplace, if you look at the way Yolt's done its marketplace, they've been very selective about their partners. So on the one hand, you've got the, I'm going to have open APIs where you can test it and use it really quickly, the Stripe.coms of the world. But on the other side, when you're dealing with somebody's core bank account, you've kind of got this, actually, we're going to really partner with you, and you've got more of the App Store model. And I think when security is important, uh, you've kind of got to think about that. And people didn't think about that so much, I think, in the early days of these APIs. And you know, people talk about Twitter having really pulled back on their API. You can sort of see why when this stuff like this is happening. So there's always that interesting balance of, like, how do I give that openness and that access versus how do I give you that security? It's not easy. And we, we talked at the start of the show, Simon, about, you know, talking about point of sale lending and financing. And one of the ways we're lo- one of the things we're looking at is how do you authenticate individuals? One of the things we touched on earlier is like social authentication. How does that play out in this space? Because obviously this isn't good. I think increasingly these uh, systems have to be a data point and a part of a consideration. Uh, you have to be. You have to assume you're going to get hacked. You have to assume the APIs are going to be used for nefarious purposes, and you have to be able to deal with those consequences. The old model, yeah, the old model of security was uh, prevent at all costs. I think the new model of security is prevent as much as you can, recognize that it will happen, and have a really uh, comprehensive plan for dealing with when it does inevitably. But that's a different kind of hire to the kind of CISO hire that you typically see under a normal kind of banking infrastructure, right? What I find really interesting about this is when I speak to my friends about it, because, you know, I've got a really exciting life and talk about security breaches with my friends. When we talk about this, they go, oh, well, I don't use Facebook anymore. So, you know, it's I'm fine. I'm covered. And then I go, right, but, you know, have you used Facebook to log into other things before, such as Tinder, Spotify, Airbnb, Instagram, etc. All of which and were compromised. As exactly. Part of this. And when you've got a really sexy OAuth 2 flow to just log you into those various third party apps, that's really great until you realize it that. It becomes another point of weakness, right? Exactly. Digital identity, I think, is the Higgs boson of the whole digital economy. If you could figure that out, everything else falls into place. Yeah. And so another person who has very strong views on Facebook and hosted both our digital identity and GDPR insight shows um, is Ryan Garner. And he gave us his thoughts on this story. So yeah, without a doubt, Facebook has had a horrible year. First Cambridge Analytica, and now this huge data breach of 50 million user accounts. And there's a common problem with both of these things. Uh, Facebook's management and use of, of customer data. Now, Facebook aims to know everything about you. It's in their DNA. It's how they make money. But this is a risky strategy when all the data is centralized. Now, there are obvious benefits to both customers and businesses when services and apps can leverage all this amazing data, Uh, the contextual data, the data integrated from lots of different services. This is an amazing asset. Um, And it's a big part of how product teams can create value for their customers. But it's the customer that should have control of this data. It's both a security and a privacy risk if it's hoarded by companies like Facebook. And we're seeing some of the 
the, the kind of effects of that with Cambridge Analytica and also this 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 big data hack and all previous data hacks from not just Facebook but other companies like Equifax and all the big ones from last year. One possible solution is to look at a decentralized model for customer data management. This is where there's not just one treasure trove of data to target and there's actually uh, it's kind of decentralized across different users uh, and this would make life for a hacker way, way harder. The Facebook's hack also comes at the same time or in the same week that Tim Berners-Lee announced in his new venture, Solid. Um, and this is a kind of complete counterweight to Facebook and how they do data management. And Solid aims to give users much more control of their data and choice over which of their apps can access it. And this is obviously a very high-profile Tim Berners-Lee, inventor of the World Wide Web, and an interesting move, but it's kind of a hard nut to crack. Um, the startups in the in, in, that have been around for a little while, like Miko, People.io, Me, that have already kind of been pushing this agenda forward uh, and and trying to give people more control of their of their personal data. But what this recent Facebook hack says to me is that it's obviously bad news for Facebook. It's bad news for the customers that have been affected. But it's also bad news for new ventures trying to use customer data to deliver propositions that deliver real value to customers because trust is just being eroded with every hack that we see in the news. And personally, I think there's a huge opportunity to kind of rethink this whole space of how data is managed and used and accessed by a variety of different companies. Yeah, they've probably not sent that email out yet or that message, however they're going to do it. It would be interesting to see if they actually know who's been um, affected. Um, It will be interesting to see if they can um, uh, kind of pinpoint that to that level. Um, Hopefully, you know, they're a fairly new business. Um, Their tech stack should be fairly sophisticated. Um, So they should be able to uh, look at these things quite easily and inform customers. And even if it's not part of, uh, a requirement under GDPR or either the laws that they're operating under in, in other jurisdictions, then it's just good customer management and good customer service to inform your customers that something has gone wrong um, and that it has affected you, unfortunately, and you're going to have to take a few steps to kind of protect yourself against it. Um, and I'm, I'm sure Facebook, are, you know, a, a sensible bunch should be kind of sending that message to their customers. I think the impact of these things in isolation um, don't have huge effects. I think we've seen this over the years where you've seen um, different companies have different data breaches and um, people still carry on um, doing the things that they like to do. Facebook and the services that it has are very kind of central to people's lives. And so it's going to take a lot for people to stop using those things. But what is happening either within Facebook or across all the kind of digital services that, that, that access and manage customer data is trust is slowly being eroded. And it will get to a point where people say that's enough, either with Facebook or with just services that are asking permission to access customer data. I think accessing customer data is going to be a key part for really great propositions to deliver value to customers uh, and without access accessing that data it's really hard to um, create that intelligent contextual service that uh, is personalized to towards people's um, needs and preferences and so we need that trust and if if that trust erodes and disappears then we're going to be in a very 
difficult position. Once again, we asked the great British public what they thought of the breach. Did it affect how much they trust Facebook? And did this make them delete their Facebook account in line with what Nina was just talking about? Last week, 50 million uh, Facebook accounts were breached uh, in a huge data hack. Did you know about that? Were you aware of that? Yes, I got logged out of all my Facebook accounts, yeah, automatically. I've been using it less and less over the last few years, and when this happened, I was almost a bit like, maybe I'll never use it again, maybe this is it, maybe that's done. (laughs) Like, Facebook's over. And now? Um, I logged in to change my password, but I'm not. I'm not keen on using it anymore, not really that fast. It does make me feel that my information probably isn't as secure as I would like it to be, but it doesn't really stop me using it because it's too easy. I'm not on Facebook for, for reasons like that. It was, it was bound to happen at some point, and they hold so many users' data that when it, when it did breach, it was going to be a big story. So, yeah, I, I tend to avoid social networks for that reason, really. Yeah. <laughs> Um, about six months ago, something like that. Yeah, I was getting increasingly concerned about privacy, really, uh, the GDPR and that kind of thing coming into force. Why is everyone being breached at the moment? Because it's like British Airways, and then there's Facebook, and the, it doesn't seem to be very secure. I probably wouldn't delete my Facebook account, but I do think that I could probably sue them now for some GDPR thing, which I might look into if I have the time, but I feel like one man against the world. Our next story comes from the FT and concerns the rising cost of Brexit. So the headline is a little bit sensational. Uh, European banks weigh leaving UK derivatives market. So European banks are considering whether to begin closing out their trillions of pounds worth of derivatives positions in London in the coming months as the UK struggles to finalise an agreement on leaving the EU. So the Bank of England estimates that around £38 trillion worth of deals are affected by Brexit, including 90% of euro-denominated interest rate swaps. So look, even the most deluded Brexiteer surely must admit that these negotiations haven't gone to plan. Oh, no, no. Theresa May did a dance. The dance, the the dance, dance. is like a classic Wait, bait Kenya and switch, dance? though, right? Because so, everyone's dance. talking about the dance. Yeah, right? it, it, that's going full on Trump, isn't oh, yeah. it? Like, yeah. Let's do something wacky. Definitely. Everyone's talking about the dance. My question is, is this FT scaremongering or is this something people should genuinely be concerned about? It is absolutely not sensationalised in any way. This is the funny thing about it, is that the whole point of London being this financial centre for Europe is hinged on the fact that they are an EU member, which is why they have this hub for Euro clearing, which means that they are processing all these derivative payments from different countries in the EU. If we leave the EU with no deal, which seemingly is what's going to happen, because um, as... uh, Theresa Mason in the speech today, they're very willing to leave with no deal. That means that all the rules change. There's absolutely no agreement in place. So what does that mean for the services sector, which includes all financial services, which includes this? It does have to stop or there's going to be costs because there's nothing there. So this um, story has actually been going around for years now. It was even before the vote happened. Analysts, think tanks, all the investment banks, there's been reams and reams of this report saying the exact same thing, that if there is no deal and if it, if it isn't a soft Brexit – 
and they haven't agreed, then they will pull this uh, clearing capability from London. And EU officials have said that. I wonder if they can do that because it's uh, to me it feels like death by a thousand cuts because the way an interest rate swap derivative works is it's a multi-year contract. Some of them are up to 30-year deals. How do I exit that position on all of my interest rate swaps over 30 years? Like It's going to take some time to negotiate that stuff. But over five years, you're probably going to have negotiated well, a lot. That's what transition deal may be for, right? So the transition period that they've got in between, it may be if there is no deal, then go, okay, the, it, if they have a transition period and there's no deal, they'll probably use that time to go, right, okay, you have to unwind all these positions and businesses that you have here because there's no agreement in place. So, I mean, it's very legit that um, that could happen, just not overnight. So according to Laura Muir, who heads the strategy and bank structure at Barclays, there is no easy mechanism for moving a trade from one clearinghouse to another. Both counterparties must move at the same time. Re-executing trades is a big problem. Transferring derivatives business would mean closing out thousands of swaps and futures deals and opening new positions elsewhere, which would potentially cost banks and other holders of swaps millions of dollars in extra margin payments and in associated capital costs, which is wasted money, Yes, absolutely. But there's a couple of things going on in capital markets. One is the commitment to open access, which is collateral at multiple venues. Now, will you ever get um, compatibility between all of those venues and will they ever get to open access? I think that's a different question entirely. But that said, I'm not so worried about will they move all the ones they've already got. It's where are the new ones going to go? Yeah, absolutely. Where are you going to go do the new deals? And well, apparently Paris and Germany, are, well, P- Paris and Frankfurt are the two venues that have been really vying for it. And Paris seeming like the most likely one. Eurex and Euros uh, are salivating at this. And another, another story from Business Insider says that UBS expects London to lose 25% of a 1 trillion euro a day business due to Brexit. But let's make this real for people. We've said derivative and interest rate swap and all of these sorts of things. They sound like these distant things that don't really affect me. It's just those bankers over there that are going to be worried, right? No, I mean, it affects everyday business. The thing is, it's, it, you know, derivatives are complex. They are financial instruments that the banks used in order to um, hedge certain positions on very vanilla type trades. Right. So like the interest rate swap is really getting rid of my currency risk. So I'm locking in a price in the future for my currency so that I, and if the, I've got a wild currency swing or, or the currencies just move a little bit, at least I know where I'm going to be in six months or two years or three years so I can see my way out to that. And for big companies like your Coca-Colas or your uh, name another big company here that's you know in the FTSE 100, your Vodafones or whatever, being able to have that certainty allows them to get on with doing business. Um, and that's something that's really, really important. Then if I know I've got that certainty to do business, I can hire people, which means jobs. So a lot of this thing is, is really going to make a difference. I too. think a lot of big banks have already moved their euro clearing your denomination clearings out of the UK already in preparation of a hard deal Brexit anyway. So they moved some of their desk. Um, but I think moving some of your desk is different to moving your operations. It's much easier to move a few salespeople than it is to move the people who do the core operations job of finding the contracts, writing the swift message, reconciling the accounts, all of that sort of middle and back office stuff. 
that's going to be where you really start to feel it. Um, and it, it, it's kind of sad because uh, we were the engine room of the global economy at one point, and losing that means that you're losing London and being the global financial centre. Therefore, the you know, like if you look at where London was uh, a decade ago to where it is today, it has created a like it as a city has done hugely well. Now the rest of the UK economy hasn't grown with it. That's I think a, a real issue that we need to talk about and think about. But at the same time, you had a jewel in the crown and that's kind of going. But maybe that's what some of the people who voted for Brexit did vote for. So we caught up with Jacob Rees-Mogg. No, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> we obviously didn't. We caught up with Oscar Williams Groot, senior reporter at Business Insider, who wrote the story we've just been discussing. The big issue is that after we leave the European Union, it's looking increasingly likely that we won't have access to the European financial market, which means we won't be able to process a lot of business from European companies. Um, And one of the biggest financial markets is derivatives, which are basically contracts written on top of um, securities. So rather than buying a share, you'll write a deal with somebody, you'll say, hey, if the underlying value of this share moves 5%, you agree to give me 5% back. So it's a way of sort of ensuring hedging against losses or, or big movements, things like that. And um, it's a huge market, sort of trillion euros a day for euro-denominated contracts like this. And Europe has for years been trying to um, stop London processing euro-denominated derivatives because they think because the the UK doesn't have the euro, they shouldn't be allowed to. It's effectively meddling uh, some people think, particularly France. France definitely keen to get hold of it. But obviously, the the notional value of these derivatives is a trillion euros a day. That's actually the value of the contracts in terms of what you would have to pay if they come through. So they don't actually that amount of money doesn't change hands, but it's still a huge market. And uh, if the business moves overseas, then that's going to lead to. Uh, jobs moving with it it's going to lead to lower tax revenue for the uk and it also will just mean that momentum is shifting across the channel so if your derivatives operations move from london to frankfurt then you might be more likely to move your um you know securities trading operations so you can centralize it elsewhere or just other parts of the bank so if it is lost the fear is that there'll be a gradual drift and more and more finance jobs will move with it Yeah, potentially. Um, And we're already seeing other parts of the banks move as well. Um, Sales and trading, Bank of America, Merrill Lynch have announced they're moving about 400. uh, Well, they've said 200 people, but the reports are as it could be as high as 400 to um, Paris because they're worried that they won't be able to do um, security sales and trading in London after Brexit. Um, So there's lots and lots of parts of the bank that are at risk of moving overseas if we can't get a solid Brexit deal by next March, which obviously is looking increasingly unlikely. Initially, it's going to be at bank level. It's um, It will mean a headache for executives um, at all the major sort of investment banks as they try and work out what their legal exposure is to this before they even try and work out the operational exposure. There's so many different questions, so many unknowns out there. So initially, the big problem will be for the banks. They seem to be relatively confident that they have worked out their exposure and that they can deal with that by moving jobs overseas, moving operations where they need to be. 
Um, but obviously, as we were talking about before, the fear is and the likelihood is that this this is just the beginning of a gradual shift of momentum away from London um, and onto sort of continental Europe. And obviously that will begin to have a knock-on effect in uh, UK tax revenues and all sorts of other things. You know, I can well imagine it having a knock-on in the sort of arts and food scene in places like London, for example, because gallery openings are very often sponsored by the major investment banks. Uh, the high-end restaurants are also supported by bankers who, you know, like to treat themselves. Um, so it could start to um, have effects that may not be easy to foresee, but will be begin to be um, visible to the man on the street. So our next story comes from the Sun and concerns money. Like the actual Sun, the Sun. How did a story come from the Sun? Wouldn't it be too hot there for stories? Didn't I see something earlier? You're so <laughs> ready to be a father. Oh my god! <laughs> wow. <laughs> just wow. I don't know. I, do you know what? I don't know how to resurrect this one, so I'm going to just. I'm just going to dive in. The Sun, um, the newspaper in the UK. The Sun, the newspaper in the UK. Which is so. Did you post this story in Slack? I, I remember seeing something you posting in Slack from the Sun and saying, "Oh, by the way, I didn't just go on the Sun. I got a notification on Google oh, News." Oh, yeah, or this something. was me. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> this is about packaged accounts, right? So sometimes you get a bank account and then suddenly you find out years later that oh wait, I've got this silver or platinum or other sort of named account where you've got a lot of packaged in things like maybe you've got some travel insurance which by the way is the least used type of insurance of all time and is a bit of a con um and then you don't really remember opting into that upgrade it just kind of happened but now you're paying 10 pounds a month or 20 pounds a month or yeah up to 19 pounds with the natwest reward platinum well there are rumors that this could be the next sort of ppi the right? next ppi which is PPI you know, revisited. Were, were you missold an upgrade oh god were i'm you... gonna be spammed on i was my gonna mobile. say so just when just when people were getting over the PPI calls and TV ads and all that sort of stuff. I think TV ad, where yeah. it's like, yeah, have yeah. I got PPI? Oh, yeah, yeah. In my brain. I love the, the, sort of, the sort of like last gasp ones, which was like, what do you mean you still haven't claimed for PPI? Yeah. <laughs> um, but of course, one of, the, one, of the, one of the big issues here was around um, the travel insurance assignment, which you mentioned, was that actually, if you just bought a travel insurance product on its own the rates were more competitive than what you got as a bundle and that bundle was very hard to claim against so all of these so-called rewards if you ever went to go and use them the process for doing so was so complex that you were bundled something that the take-up rate of was extremely low so this is like a fee that looks like a benefit and you can see why, the, from a competition standpoint, people have uh, issues with that. What, well, for me, the bit where it's like you were eligible for the insurance. When I'm taking out an insurance policy, because I'm really fun, I really like to read through it. So, you know, we're not just looking for damage. We're looking for theft and damage here, right? Right. Um, <laughs> but... I like to go through and make sure that, you know, we've we've read the terms and conditions because I'm really exciting. Maybe not everyone does that. Are you telling me that not everyone does that? Is We're that telling what? you that oh, okay, everyone, not everyone does, does that. that. Yeah. Okay, but, but, you- but, even, but this is even like not everybody's read the terms and conditions. There were no terms and conditions that you remember reading. And that's Yeah, so that's what I'm getting to, that not even having those there and also being upgraded without permission, things like that. That's where it kind of goes, hmm, okay, why is this happening? But if we step back in time... Um, I was. Diddly do, diddly do, diddly do. Oh, you got there just before me. 
into, <laughs> into the sun. I, I do believe that sometimes at the start of the thing, it's not like evil intent. Actually, people were trying to innovate. And we see quite a lot of this happening, this bundling of stuff happening now in, in an Africa context where the consumer protection is like 10 years behind. But what they're trying to do is create something of value for a customer with and the but they're, they're taking well a product-led approach to doing that. Yeah, let's be fair to the the intent of a lot of these when when they were dreamed up. I suspect was how can we add more benefits whilst growing revenue? How can we give something back? How can we do something useful? I, and I think there was um, there were some versions of this where it was like. Um, Barclays called it their app store or something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. They had yeah. they had some word for it where it was like you you actually had these choices and it was four ninety nine and you opted in and you got to pick the benefit you wanted. So the the website so one I'm in control of those. What what am I actually going to get? And two, like I'm choosing the thing and I consciously remember choosing it. So I think that customer centric piece is key, but it does feel like a bolt on, um, like a bolt on product rather than as part of a service, rather than well, like, maybe in the UK, right? But I'm seeing this kind of stuff happening now in the in the Africa context. This is where some of the innovation is, and we're maybe behind the times, and frankly, but but I worry about us falling in the same traps. And in five years' time, us all screaming about consumer protection and we didn't do this and we didn't do that, which is why I mentioned the kind of step back in time moment where I think what's happening is it's meant to be innovation. What kind of stuff on those counts are you seeing in your market that are innovative in that way? Because obviously these ones, it's like a whole host of things. So So we're not talking here about motor insurance and stuff. Mm. (laughs) Fundamentally, life insurance Mm. is a big one. How do you pay for your funeral? Now, do people value wow. it? Do people Some value it? Emo on <laughs> <and> tech inside. <laughs> I think actually, what's happened with the research there is that you know, people have backed away from like, why do you want wish me to die? Actually, that's what the research is showing. But health insurance, maternity insurance, how do you actually even insure your business? Because if you lose your single source of income and you're an entrepreneur because your dukkha burned down, that's a big deal. Um, and people don't really understand insurance. We're trying to do some HCD around it. And it's a really interesting space at the moment to go, is there something there? I get the innovation point. I'm going to push back because I think innovation should be more than just bundling generic products into a one-size-fits-all offer. Well, it's yeah, commodity agreed. products. Yeah. It, has it's the same a, pro- it has to be a service. It has to be a service. And, and it, it's often not. It is. That's, that's when, it, yeah, it's often this is a current account and here's another feature on your current account rather than you're looking to have a child and where are you in your life and yeah. what are you going to need before and what are you going to have after. And, and I would say that of the services that I've been impact reviewing I can see a product mindset coming from the banks quite often where they haven't thought about and the claim process and how do I actually manage the benefit there's plenty still to do um, uh, it's almost like banking's one percent finished almost oh on that I'm gonna I'm gonna end us on that story because that is very very that's a very neat segue onto our next story which is my favorite story of this week I'm gonna say it's my favorite okay Simon Taylor, co-founder of 11FS, I woke up this week to a notification from LinkedIn to let me know that 11FS was in the top 25 most sought-after startups in the UK. Yeah! We are the news. We We are are the the news. news. (laughs) I am the news. Okay, Uh, background on this one. So LinkedIn have published their list of top startups to work for in the UK. Their methodology, so to be eligible, companies 
had to be independent and privately held, have 50 or more employees and be seven years old or younger. 11FS, yours truly, rolled in at number 19. Um, Monza number one, Revolut at number three, Clearbank at four, Go-Cardless at 13, Starling at 18 and Tandem at 23. So this is a really exciting time for fintech. It is. Nine out of 25 being banks, um, and the fintech has really done big on it. Also, Tom Blomfeld has three out of those, and Jason Bates, of course, has three out of those. So they, they, they've got a bit of a track record. I think what's interesting about this, though, is Monzo's number one, um, that um, Revolut's number three, Clearbank's number four. Like, that top space is, like, tech in the UK is a fintech story now. It, and that, I think, is a real sign of the times. And, and I think this is really... Uh, interesting validation for something where you know is fintech coming well monzo hit a million customers is fintech coming well look at all of the problems with glitches in the mainstream accounts is fintech coming yeah it, it's, it's it's here it, it's here um so for us at bud one of the big challenges we have right now was we're hiring is uh we've been talking a lot about this and, and our approach to hiring and recruitment i recently spoke to hannah who's leads our people ops and we were we were discussing actually this article and we're very very thrilled to see you guys on the list and and Monzo and Starling etc. But we kind of were discussing what is it that people are looking for in a job these days, especially in this really competitive market like London. And we talk about things like purpose and autonomy and and mastery of a subject, and that's really things that we find that you know, people are looking for and that they're able to find with fintech companies here in London. And I think what what I want to say is we have been absolutely overwhelmed by the talent that has chosen to work with us. And it's a credit to everyone in the company that's listening and everybody, Laura and Michael that I'm looking at and Ross and Leslie Ann and, and everybody else in the company, they've done this and they've gone and delivered for clients and they've helped us grow an amazing company. And I think they've created a culture amongst ourselves of uh, just wanting to do things that are right for the end customer and there's a sense of purpose and meaning and i think that purpose and meaning with the autonomy and mastery is a really important point what's your mission and i think we're all united by this fact that finance can be better when we say digital banking's one percent finished without wanting to get into advertorial because i mean this from my heart from my soul but if you change finance you change people's lives and that's why we're here and that human story is important and also 1% 1% finished isn't a damning indictment on like the state of play today. It's about seizing that opportunity, it's recognizing op- that opportunity in the remaining it, it, 99%. It's a statement of optimism. And on a personal level, this is real validation um, of the work we've been doing. But it's also like, let's roll with the punches. We've got, we've not proven ourselves yet. We've got a lot to do. People know us for being a podcast, but yeah. wait until you see what we got. And, you know, so look, to compile this list as well. So companies were measured on four pillars, which are employment, growth, engagement, job interest, and attraction of top talent. On that, I was going to shout out um, our head of HR, Sophie Teen, because Sophie is an absolute machine. It's incredible. Also, she's a very lovely person. She's also an amazing, amazing person. Self-praise is no praise. I'm going to move us on. Mm. Um, And our next story comes from NPR.org. Is data the new cash? Shiru Cafe in Providence, Rhode Island, located near Brown University. Students pay with their personal data and uni ID not in cash. So, Simon, we talked about this a little bit earlier, but how it works. To get the free coffee, university students must give away their names, phone numbers, email addresses, majors, 
dates of birth and professional interests, entering all of the information in an online form. So in exchange, students open themselves up to receiving information from corporate sponsors who pay the cafe to reach its clientele through logos, apps, digital advertisements on screens and stores and on mobile devices, sign surveys, and even baristas. So this is how you do identity theft. But no, but hang on. So this is how you reinvent like data sharing so that there's a tangible benefit for customers, a tangible value exchange. I think but I've you talked do about like this. coffee a lot. I do like coffee a lot. Founding member of the 11FS Coffee Snob Society. But I just want to say, so on this, the, the whole idea, the whole association around data sharing, and this is down to sort of things that have happened with like Cambridge Analytica, Facebook, more there's generally. There's a value exchange here. It's toxic. And that's because these companies have used data to their to meet their sort of end goals and in in the detriment of the customers. We need to flip that on its head. And and this is what GDPR is all about. It's about understanding what's the value of my data to me and how do I then share that in exchange for something else? I I really think there's something to um, where Andreessen Horowitz are going at the moment, the A16Z thesis around winner-take-all platforms reach a certain point with the advertising model in which their aims to monetize the two-sided market, in other words, you're the product being sold, um, become adversarial to your own aims. Um, There's a certain scale and we're we're seeing that happen. Whereas a different business model is, is sorely needed and a business model where I have more data about me than Facebook does, uh, where I'm empowered to take to participate in some of the benefits of that growth is really, really interesting. And you see some of this happening on the edges of crypto. And I, I think it's probably more ad tech than crypto where, where it needs to be. But one of the early thing, projects I've seen is uh, Ocean Protocol, and there are others like it. There's the basic, basic attention token. These are these marketplaces for data where I'm empowered to own my data. And I can either make a micropayment for a service, so I can pay the uh, sort of fee for the article on the, on the news website or they can target me with an advert but they don't see my data they see little bits about me enough about me that i allow them to see so they'll see i'm over 18 i'm in this geographic region they see they see those elements so to me this coffee shop is just you know an illustration of what we've already seen before and i'm thinking about the number of times we have been in an airport and how many of us have handed over our contact details just to get free Wi-Fi. And for many of us, that's a fair value exchange. Um, also in the United States, having studied in the United States, college students will do anything for free stuff. Um, but people are re- realizing the power. But this isn't free. That's the point. Well, well, in that, and to them though, and I yeah. think this, that's like a separate issue. So there's, there's the issue of, we, maybe we're older, maybe we work in this industry, we are realizing the power of our data. Um, we are realizing the power of our, our digital identities and what they can be used for. And so if I'm going to give you my address, I want you to give me something in return. I need, I need you to get me a deal on my utilities tariff so that I'm paying less if I'm going to give that information to you. And so I think that data needs to work for the person that is generating it, no? I recognize the value of my own data. I recognize it's a valuable commodity. So join me in this value exchange, please, Absolutely. other organization. I think it's interesting. Facebook have had a 10-year head start, but we're uh, we're catching on. Okay, I'm moving us on. Our and finally story this week comes from Mashable. Burger King's <laughs> AI-written <laughs> ads loss. are beautiful disasters. That's a headline I can get on board with. Burger King is releasing a series of ads that were apparently written by a deep learning algorithm. One of the ads declares, gender reveal bad, tender reveal young. It is a boy bird with crispy chicken tenders from Burger Thing. (laughs) 
um, a commercial about their signature Whoppers says, the Whopper lives in a bun mansion just like you. Order yourself today. Have it Uruguay. It's like right. an amazing haiku. It's incredible, you know, isn't it? It's, so weird. it's just amazing. It's so beautiful. I need a like inspirational meme of this somewhere. Yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. just going to board this. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, they're, they're, because they're so beautifully weird. There's something about that un- uncanny valley of the humour yeah, of this. Agreed. It's and like so abstract. They keep coming. So in another, the AI decides that Burger King's new chicken fries are the new potato. We are not sorry. <laughs> The the robotic narration intones. The potato deserved this. That's literally my inner voice. Yeah. Every time I have yeah, yeah. like something like a Burger King, and it's like, I'm not sorry. Potato deserved this. Yeah. Do you know? Do you know how that ad ended? Tastes like bird. BK logo appears. Amazing. Mm. <laughs> I love these. I'm finally. And, and we talk about applied AI. I mean, what could be? So better? yeah, clearly AI is the answer to everything in banking. <laughs> Absolutely. Naturally, get yourself a robot. Don't seriously don't. Not At least only, it not feels only, kind of pure compared to like yeah. the the what is it the goo, was it the Twitter Twitter algorithm that tried to do its own tweets and it ended up just being like really super rude. racist yeah oh. so there's a really important point here <laughs> the point is so this is actually a gentle troll of AI which Mashable reported as fact so in reality they were actually conceived and made by an ad agency called David Miami oh. Oh man! It's like never revealed that it's magic. Oh. Never show me how the ma- magic trick works. But I do feel a bit like that at the moment. It's like I just want to be bamboozled. I would have gone to bed happy tonight. If oh, I, no, that would have been sorry, I feel like I purity just shattered the dream for I, I'm all our listeners as well. I'm waiting for AlphaGo does a comedy set though, because that could just be brilliant. I just love William Shatner to do a spoken word version of it. Imagine Ooh, that. Oh, very good. I actually know who William Shatner is this time. Uh, content ideas for um, David Miami right there. But so what's funny is they convinced several news outlets. So it was picked up by Mashable. Um, it was picked up by lots of different places. Um, so I love that. Well, it's great. But, you know, the fact that we're Mashable and, and Burger King supposedly are making fun of or poking fun at artificial intelligence now, it makes me feel like, all right, okay, let, let's let's do something with it now. And, and I just made a joke earlier about applied AI, but I think this is an opportunity for us to go, right, what are we, what are we doing? And let's look at our, not to make it all very serious, but let's look at our training data and, and what is it that is going to make artificial intelligence It ain't what you do, it's the way to- you do it. Mm. Oh, again, another worthy note to end. And despite your scepticism, that was my favourite, and finally, sorry for a while, producer Laura's best work. Um, And we now know why the chicken crossed the road. Oh! To become a a sandwich. That's a worthy note on which to end. Yes. So on that worthy note, this wraps up this week's news show. Thank you so much to all of our guests. Guys, where can people find out more about you, Nina? Um, I'm usually on Twitter at Nina Mohanty or at this underscore is underscore bud. Love it. Leslie Ann? I'm on Twitter at Vaughn LA or LinkedIn. Liana? And um, I'm on Twitter and Instagram. I'm just at Liana Brinded. Uh, you can find me um, coming at you from the sun uh, or at SY Taylor on Twitter. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, how do you follow that? Um, Ross Gallagher 7 on Twitter or Ross G at 11fs.com. Join in the discussion on fintechinsidernews.com or tweet us at fintechinsiders. Remember to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And to really make our weeks, please do leave us a review. And check out 11fspulse.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.